most of the time, all three precognitives will see an event in the same way, but once in a while, one of them will see things differently than the other two. Jesus Christ. Why didn't I know about this? Because these minority reports are destroyed to the instant they occur. Why? Obviously, for pre-crime to function, there can't be any suggestion of fallibility. After all, who wants a justice system that instills doubt? It may be reasonable, but it's still doubt. In the future, murders are predicted and stopped before they occur. It seems like a perfect system until the head of the program is himself targeted. Join us as we discuss this movie's homage to Time Cop, winning an Oscar for chewing gum, and why we can't have flying cars. Then we find out if 2002's Minority Report stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Test of Time. I'm James Brief, and joining me as always, and back from a vacation in Florida, is my buddy, Alan Noah. Yeah, that's me. I did it. I took the family to Disney World. Finally. This was a trip we were supposed to go on in May 2020. Guess why it got canceled? Uh, because there was no baseball season that year, and you were like, the fuck? Um, well, it was for the same reason there was no baseball season because of COVID. So yeah, it was a trip we were literally planning at the end of 2019. And we just finally went two and a half years later. Uh, and I could go on and on and on and on and talk about all of the things at Disney World. But I just got to tell you about Galaxy's Edge, which is the official name of the Star Wars land in Hollywood Studios. James, it is so damn cool. You haven't been, but I assume you've seen like pictures or, you know, videos or things online. Uh, No, I haven't looked at anything, but I know it exists. Well, okay, so... Can I give you spoilers about the rides? Is that okay? Uh, of course, of course. I'm just saying I haven't like seeked out YouTube videos on the ride. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I mean, I've just seen it like on my Facebook feed because friends of mine have gone and it's amazing. First off, before I even get into the rides, the land itself is really cool. It's sort of like the Harry Potter stuff that they have at Universal, which is just really immersive. And you are not in a land at Disney World. You are on the planet Batu, And the people who work there take it really seriously. And they treat it like you are on an alien outpost. So even just like walking around is really cool. Like the places where you can go and eat, there's like a droid who's like roasting some alien carcass on like some like thing. And then you go and you get a sausage and, you know, it's just sausage. But like the theming is that it's this alien thing that you're eating. You can get blue milk and green milk. You can buy all of these cool things. You can make your own lightsaber. You need to have reservations for that. And I couldn't get reservations, so I didn't make a lightsaber. But there's like stormtroopers walking around and you could totally sash them, which is like really, really fun if you're a giant nerd like me. Like what? Like what did you do? I went up to him and I said, hey man, have you ever hit anything with your blaster like ever? You know, because they always miss. And the guy was like, that's affirmative. And I was like, hey, you remember that time you got beat up by Ewoks? And he was like, hey, you need to move along there. And, And then if you start, like, sassing them too much, they'll, like, act like, you know, authorities and that you're in trouble. And this one guy was kind of giving him a hard time about something. And one of the stormtroopers was like, hey, I need to see your identification. And then what would I say in that situation? I wave my hand and I say, 
You don't need to see his identification. And of course, my kids are standing there rolling their eyes of like, Dad, please stop. You're embarrassing us. But then some other dad was like, ah, good one. I'm like, yeah, see, this is really fun. And did the Stormtrooper play along? Yeah, 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 yeah. They're playing the role, but like they get it, you know. And so there's two rides. There's Smuggler's Run and Rise of the Resistance. Rise of the Resistance is honestly probably better that I don't spoil it. It's just really, really cool on like five different levels. But Smuggler's Run, you get to fly the Millennium Falcon. Like you get to go on the Millennium Falcon. You walk in that hallway with the white panels. You can sit at the at the chess like hologram game and take your picture. And then you go on this mission in the Millennium Falcon and you can be either a pilot, a gunner, or an engineer. I went on twice. Both times I was a pilot. And depending on where you sit, the first time I was to the left, the second time I was to the right, but I got to do the thing where you like pull that lever down and you go into light speed it was so cool. It was just the coolest thing I ever did in my whole life. Uh, I'm very proud of you. you. You had two children too, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, they were there. Cool. So so those are your top three things, I guess. What, like having children is one? No, you just said the greatest thing that ever happened to you was pulling the lever of the light speed. Yeah, yeah. So then I assume number two and three were probably your kids, right? I mean, that's only fair after pulling the light speed lever. No, because also they have a cantina and it's not the most icely cantina because you're on a different planet, but it is a Star Wars cantina and the drinks are really good. You can get alcoholic drinks and there's like a DJ that's like spinning music and they do play a little figure and Dan in the modal nodes and you can get like these collectible cups and they're like super overpriced. But Courtney was like, eh, why not? We're here. So we got both overpriced souvenir cups and the special beer flight thing. It comes in like Rancor teeth. And like, that's also a collectible that you can take home. So we got that too. You mentioned the music by was by which band? Figuring Dan and the Modal Nodes. I know because, you know, you've yelled at me about this before. But can you explain <laughs> to everyone else this band? They'll, they'll know once you explain it. No, I think I think everyone in the world knows that Figurin' Dan and the Modal Nodes are the band from Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope in the Most Icely Cantina. Can you the do guys an with the big giant heads. Yeah, they they do the song. And everyone knows them. Actually, um, Eli, my son, was giving me crap about like, how do you know the name of that band? And I was like, well, I had their CD single, which was a thing that came out in 1997 with the special editions. You could buy that as a single. But the whole experience there was just phenomenal. The theming is really cool. The food is good. The The drinks are amazing in the cantina. Walking around there is just really, really fun. You go on the rides and you still just kind of want to like hang out in that part of the park. It's very, very cool. Definitely highly recommend to anyone heading to Orlando. Sounds good. Sounds fun. Um, and uh, I probably won't be going down there anytime soon, but uh, anyone else interested in the Star Wars world? That apparently is better than uh, basically anything you've ever experienced on Earth. Oh, or I guess it's not on Earth, right? No, it's on the planet Batu. Well, let's go from George Lucas to his movie spiritual brother, uh, Steven Spielberg, and his 2002 film, Minority Report, based on a Philip K. Dick uh, novella. Are you familiar with Philip K. Dick? Uh, he wrote Total Recall, right? Or the story that Total Recall is based on? Yeah, the stories for that. He wrote the story for Blade Runner. There was actually a film uh, like 15 years ago or so, uh, Paycheck. Ben Affleck is one of those uh, Philip K. Dick stories. Oh, and the, the sequel, uh, Direct Deposit. Yes, yes, that's, that's true. Well, in case people haven't seen Minority Report or it's been a while, this movie takes place in a futuristic Washington, D.C. in the year 2054. John Anderton, played by Tom Cruise, is the leader of the pre-crime program, which stops murders before they take place. And they do this thanks to these three so-called precogs who have visions of murders in advance before they happen. And it seems to be a perfect system as there haven't been any murders in six years. As the program is set to expand from Washington, D.C. to 
the entire country, a Department of Justice agent, Danny Whitwer, played by Colin Farrell, he audits pre-crime. Then, the pre-crimes have a vision of John Anderton committing a murder, and he goes on the run to prove his pre-innocence. John learns more about the nature of precogs and how the system works before ultimately discovering the true motives behind this plot. Ooh, dun dun dun. So this movie came out 20 years ago, June 2002. I don't remember if I saw it in the theater. I know I've seen this movie before. I'm guessing maybe I I went with some buddies and saw it in the theater. How about you? Oh, I absolutely saw this in the theater, probably opening weekend, if not opening night. I mean, this is early 2000s Steven Spielberg. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge Spielberg fan. So this is Spielberg. This is sci-fi. Tom Cruise. It was getting good reviews and people were getting excited about it. So I definitely saw it on opening weekend. And so did a lot of people, actually. It had a $100 million budget. And interestingly, uh, Cruz and Spielberg, they both agreed to waive their usual salary and to keep the budget down. And they took instead 15% of the film's gross. And that turned out to be a smart idea. Uh, it opened at number one with $31 million. Uh, that weekend, Disney's Lilo and Stitch, uh, that opened as well. It actually had the number one ticket sales that week, but because of the most of those tickets were for children, those tickets are half price. So Minority Report actually came in at number one that weekend. And it, uh-huh. it wound up uh, with $225 million domestically and $360 million worldwide. So if Cruz and Spielberg took 15% of the 360, that ends up with uh, $54 million apiece. And that is a good time. I'll tell you what. How do you know what it's like to have $54 million? I have no idea, but I'll tell you next week when I win the lottery. Okay, good plan. I guess you can see the future too, like the precogs. So when Spielberg was working on this movie, he wanted to get the future right. He didn't want this movie to just be like pure sci-fi. He like met with these noted futurists and experts and they really talked about like what would be realistic for things to happen in 2054 and i appreciate that i appreciate that he didn't just like you know make stuff up for what the future might be and you know some of the stuff that they talk about in this future does seem fairly realistic the movie takes place in 2054 we're closer to that now it's 2022 um the idea of these big giant screens everywhere and you can move the screens like with your hands. I think like that technology does exist. It's not very common and widespread now, but you could imagine that that would be common, you know, in another 32 years. There's so much in this film that I give Steven Spielberg credit for going with these so-called futurists because it's not flying cars and teleportation because there will probably not be teleportation in the year 2054. But what they probably will have that they didn't have in 2002 that they absolutely have today that I have been thinking about for the last 20 years is that scene when John Anderton, Tom Cruise's character, goes into like a mall or something and what kind of advertisements does he get personalized advertisements absolutely not just personalized advertisements but incredibly realistic ones like hey mr anderton how was that pair of khakis you bought at the gap last week do you need a matching shirt that's exactly what you see today you search for popcorn once and you're just going to see advertisements for popcorn for you know for months but it does take place in a mall are malls really going to be that big in uh, in another 32 years absolutely not but some kind of commercial center will be you know actually the computer screen you we're talking about. I'm not sure that particular thing would exist. I, I would see maybe there's sensors on the wall that can move your hand, but I, I love there's a scene of like a virtual reality den. And yes, of course, it's going to be sex and there's an implied uh, black market for you to do some really sick shit in the VR room that only if you pay them extra, like some guy seems to want to like kill his boss or something. Right. But some people are just there at an award show and people are just telling them they're great. And I was like, yeah, I think people will just go there to be happy and just, you know, you'll win a small softball game or something and everyone's cheering for you. Or maybe the whole world is. But it was these subtle little details there that I thought were really cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
I did definitely think that like, you know, the personalized ads and things were pretty spot on. But like when John is reminiscing about his son who has been kidnapped, he is watching these video files and he has to like take each individual file. It's on like, it almost looks like a, like a lens for glasses, like this clear little piece of glass. And he has to take that and it's got like a label on it that says, you know, picnic, you know, whatever the day is, and then put that in the machine. And that is like, way off base. You know, obviously now we have just digital files and we can just access any old thing and you don't need to like go through physical anything to find that one video that you like. So that I thought was a miss. I've seen the crystal disc before. That's to me is actually almost like a, a little trope of sci-fi. Not that it's unrealistic, but it's just always like a glass ever since like Superman. But I want to ask you about that scene. So there's there's a subplot of the movie that winds up being very important that uh, his son uh, went missing years earlier. Uh, he's a drug addict. He's completely PTSD'd from it. And he watches these old videos. And as he and, and his uh, ex-wife are talking to the kid, the present day John is, you know, mouthing along with the dialogue because he's obviously seen this video 300,000 times. Did this movie that came out in 2002 remind you of anything, Al, a movie that we had already seen, and it's almost the exact same thing. I'll give you a hint. You hated the movie. (laughs) That doesn't really (laughs) narrow it down. Okay, I'll give you another hint. It's a mid-90s film starring... I'll give him credit. In 1996, he wasn't C. He was solidly a B-level action star. Maybe even B plus A minus, arguably, but definitely not A. Van Damme? Exactly. Oh, is it Time Cop? It is Time Cop. He keeps watching the videos of Mia Sara, his wife that was killed in the first scene. It's the exact same scene. I remember watching Minority Report 20 years ago thinking, this is just like Time Cop. This is almost a ripoff of the scene in Time Cop. So I give them credit because it's a good scene, but it rips off a good scene from Time Cop. <laughs> um. Okay, sure. (laughs) I guess they figured they could get away with that. I would say it's an homage. Obviously, Spielberg's trying to make an homage. Sure. Um, But I got to tell you, I forgot that Steven Spielberg directed this movie. You know, maybe that just shows that I'm forgetful or whatever. But like watching the movie this time, early on, I was thinking to myself at one point, oh my God, Who the hell directed this? Because this director is a goddamn amateur. And the reason I thought that was because when we're first introduced to this Department of Justice guy, Danny Witwer, who's played by Colin Farrell, Colin Farrell is chomping on gum. He's just like chomp, chomp, chomp on his gum over and over again while he's talking. And I'm like, what kind of shitty director would let one of his stars chew gum while talking. I found that extraordinarily distracting. I think that's probably because I have misophonia and certain sounds annoy the crap out of me and chomping on gum is definitely high on that list. But like, I just thought that was so weird and I don't understand why Spielberg did that at all. Well, there's there's one slight difference of agreement with you. I don't know if they have any credibility, but this film was nominated for Best Sound Editing for the Academy Awards. So there's an Academy that slightly disagrees with you. Because of the gum? Is that why they got it? Actually, it's it's written right here on the uh, on the uh, notes. Yeah, because specifically because of the gum. Oh, yeah. It says you got this award because you did a good job of editing Colin Farrell chomping on gum. I mean, come on. He shows up to set and you're like, oh, this would be a cool thing. While he's talking, he'll just be making these horrendous mouth noises. Come on, Spielberg. You're better than that. Well, I disagree with you there. But um, Spielberg, uh, you didn't recognize Spielberg directing this uh, right away. However, you immediately recognize the score, right? I didn't, and I know that it's John Williams. I was actually reading today that some people said that this score is not very John Williams-esque. He had to work on this score very, very quickly because he was working on another movie that came out in 2002, Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, and he came into this movie very late. He had a very compressed schedule, and 
the reviews were that this wasn't necessarily his best work. Again, should I tell you all the awards that this soundtrack was nominated for? Or Sure. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's a long one. Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, uh, the BMI Film and TV Award, Broadcast Film Critic Association Awards, uh, Gold Spirit Award. Oh, some real heavy hitters. The Gold Spirit Awards? Is that what you just said? Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it's an award. I mean, he's a hack, I guess. (laughs) I didn't say he was a hack. I mean, it's interesting you say that it was done quickly because I was even thinking, this is like very E.T., Superman, Star Wars, Indiana Jones-esque. Like, it's all of those. It's just, it screams John Williams. Like, some stuff's a little different. Harry Potter is is quite different, I think. Uh, Schindler's List is quite different. But it's almost... um, generic John Williams. And I mean that with the biggest compliment, actually, because it was almost like a score from any of those other classic John Williams films that you just had never heard before. Now, I think the directing was great. I think the score was great. What do you think of the cinematography, though? The way this movie is shot is really, really impressive. I like the way that they made the future look sort of like decolorized you know like it's it's almost black and white and the movie definitely has this sort of like noir feel to it which you know shouldn't work for a futuristic sci-fi movie but it does like i think the the visuals in this movie are very impressive oh absolutely i'm i'm really glad you <laughs> you didn't because the cinematographer uh who's won two oscars uh and he has another 38 wins and 95 nominations for cinematography i mean th- this guy janice kaminsky he won best cinematography for uh Schindler's list and saving private ryan he's done almost all of spielberg's best things uh he did west side story and uh Catch me if you can. But of course, what do we know him best as? Uh, what? Of course, he's known best for the 1991 uh, cinematography that he did on the Vanilla Ice picture, Cool as Ice. Oh, my God. Don't Uh, you remember I told you when we reviewed that film that the cinematographer is one of the greatest cinematographers in the history of film? Okay, well, he did good here uh, and in lots of other things. And he collected a paycheck for that (laughs) vanilla ice thing. Uh Whatever. Good for him. But let's talk about the mystery of this movie and the sort of like twists and turns of it. So I was surprised that you are 40 minutes into this movie before you get the first quote unquote twist, which is that John Anderton, this guy who busts people for pre-murders, murders that they haven't yet committed, that's his job, and he's really good at it. There hasn't been a murder in Washington, D.C. in six years, but that he himself is the the subject of investigation, that he is accused of committing a future murder. Like, I was expecting that to happen quicker. There's 40 minutes of world building before you get to that. And that isn't a twist. I mean, I was watching this thinking like, okay, I know it because I've seen this movie before. But I gotta believe that was in the trailer. That was in all of the marketing materials. Everyone knew that going into this movie. And I did watch the movie's trailer. And it does tell you that, yeah, this guy is going to be on the run for a murder that he is supposedly going to commit. This is not an award that I will give too much credit to called the Golden Schmoes Award, but their nominee for Best Line of the Year was a line I did remember from the trailer, and that sort of does give this away, and it's that line between uh, Tom Cruise and uh, Neil McConaughey. Don't run, John. You don't have to chase me. And so you know that it's a big chase scene. You're right that uh, it might have been obvious, but... Why is this happening? That's the real big mystery, and that we don't find out for a long time. Or is there a conspiracy behind it? Or is this guy about to murder someone? There's a lot of mysteries here, and I think everything is answered by the end of the film, but I think it's a great screenplay with the twists. All right, well, let's talk about some of the twists. First, one twist is that there are these minority reports, the titular minority reports, which basically is that these three precogs don't always see the exact same future, and sometimes one sees it a little bit different. So that sort of sets up this theme of free will. Is your future set in stone, or is there a little leeway? And if there's a minority report, and that means that one of the 
precogs looks at things differently, well, then the system isn't as perfect as we thought. Interesting. And then John kidnaps one of the precogs. And like, that's part of the story. She's there when he murders this person, but he doesn't know who this person is. So he's convinced that it's gotta be a setup. But then he finds out that the person that he's supposed to kill is the guy who kidnapped his son. So wait, it wasn't a setup. The twist is also that uh, Agatha, the precog, says, no, John, in your case, there was no minority report. Like, all three of us see this. All three of us saw that you're going to kill this guy. But then the twist also, once he meets the man who might be the uh, killer of his child, uh, we find out it it isn't ultimately. But the other twist is that it's not fate. They're not seeing the actual future. They're seeing a possible future. And it's still up to you to do the horrible thing. And it's not preordained. Wait, but where did you get that? Like, how do you come to that conclusion? I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Oh, because Agatha kept screaming at him, you have a choice. And obviously, he doesn't kill the guy. It looks like he's about to kill the man who, uh, who murdered his son and possibly killed dozens of other children because he walks into a hotel room and there's this uh, creepy looking dude who's got a suitcase full of uh, pictures of little kids and he's about to kill him. But then Agatha convinces him that he doesn't have to do it. So he decides not to shoot this man. And then the man's like, I was paid to say I killed your kid. If I don't die, my family doesn't get paid. So he runs up to John, who's still holding the the gun with his finger on the trigger. And he pulls uh, John's finger to basically kill himself. And what we saw in that futuristic uh, premonition may have only been the aftermath of the guy uh, being shot, not actually by John. So either way, I believe Agatha when she says said that this was not the perfect future. And obviously, by the definition that there is minority reports, none of the three of them are seeing the definite perfect future. But counterpoint, the future that was seen by the precogs where there was no minority report is what happens. And whether it's John pulling the trigger of his own free will or the guy like holding the gun up to him and like kind of shooting himself. Okay. That's a little tiny thing that you don't really see. Like the guy dies, the guy gets shot. John's holding a gun in the room and everything happens according to the vision. So that sort of does lend credence to the idea that there isn't free will and there is fate and you can't avoid it. And what's supposed to happen is what happens, which is what John says throughout the movie. I just, I disagree. I just don't think it has to have happened. Here's my theory. It sees what is probably the future because the fact that there were no murders means they did successfully stop all the murders. But of the, let's say the 250 murders they stopped, it's possible that one or two of them at the last second would not have done it, in my opinion, because probably there was a minority report on at least some of them where they didn't kill them. But of course that minority report was suppressed so that the precog cops can go arrest the person. I see what you're saying, and I don't know that I can really fully articulate an argument against what you're saying, other than I don't think the movie does a really good job of hammering that point home. That's of fair. saying that, like, yeah, there are a lot of people who we busted for murder, but because of these minority reports, they maybe weren't going to do it. Like, I can't argue with what you're saying as that probably didn't happen. No, like, I get it. But, like, I think the way the movie really leans is towards, yeah, this is fate and this is going to happen. And the way that this system works is the way that this thing is going to go down. And I guess the big final twist is that all of this was, in fact, a setup from this guy, Burgess, who is the the department head. He's the old guy. Well, let's give him credit. It's Max von Sydow. I mean, he is the uh, three-eyed raven uh-huh. in Game of Thrones. He was also in episode seven of Star Wars. There was yep. this old man in the like, very first scene of the movie. Yep. Uh, but he is a brilliantly famous actor. He was in a famous movie, uh, Igmar Bergman's uh, The Seventh Seal. I mean, he's a classic, classic actor who uh, passed away. Uh, you know when he passed away? March 8th, 2020. Mm-hmm. At the age of 90. 
I wonder if he lived to kind of get a sense of uh, coronavirus. I wonder. I mean, he he left right before then. Well, I mean, he'd heard about it. I mean, he knew that it was happening in China. And then as it was coming to the U.S. and the lockdowns were about to happen, he died. Uh, Yeah, he's, he's good in this movie. I just don't understand his plan. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. The whole thing is that pre-crime exists in Washington, D.C., one city in the whole country, and now it's going to go nationwide. This is a big deal, but they don't explain, like, how that's going to work because in Washington, D.C., they have three precogs. doesn't seem like there's tons of precogs everywhere. How are they going to get enough precogs to, like, do this thing throughout the whole country? But also... If it's going nationwide, why would this guy who is in charge of this, who it's his baby, pre-crime is the most important thing, it's his legacy, why would he want to prove that it doesn't work by framing the guy who runs it for murder? So that's a very good uh, question. It, It is a little confusing. This is how I see it. So there is a subplot in this film that the uh, the precogs, specifically Agatha, the, this woman played by Samantha Morton, uh, she is supposed to be the uh, the most brilliant and most powerful of, of the three precogs. And she keeps having this vision of a murder. And apparently it was an old murder that had already been solved. It, it turns out that the precogs keep re-seeing old murders, so they don't keep sending out the cops to the same uh, house each time because they already know, oh, this is just an echo of it. But what, uh, what Max von Sydlow, what the director Burgess did, is he needed a woman murdered. Specifically, he needed Agatha, the, the main precog. He needed her mother murdered. And you can't murder someone because of the precogs. So what he did was he had some bum pretend to murder her. Agatha and the precogs saw this attend to murder, and the precogs were able to stop it. Then director Burgess, he dresses up in the exact same outfit and goes and murders the woman and the precogs see it. But of course, the police don't go because they go, oh, that's just uh, the same murder we already solved. That guy's already in jail. And we find out that the precogs are not just like some gift from heaven. They are products of uh, birth defects from drug use. Uh, There is this futuristic drug that Tom Cruise's character uses, and pregnant women were having damaged children, uh, or rather they can see the future. But the mother, she got sober from this drug, and then she goes, hey, I want my uh, 10-year-old back, and I want to raise her. No, you can't have Agatha back, because then my entire pre-crime is gone. So he has her murdered. That's the end of it. No one knows about it. It's a perfect crime, and he got away with it. However, because John meets Agatha, she grabs his leg and she's like, no fucking look at this scene I'm looking at. And John starts investigating it and he doesn't know what he's seeing. But obviously when he tells Burgess, hey, there's this weird murder of this woman, Anne Lively. Obviously, Burgess is like, uh, that's the murder I did, so you better shut the fuck up about it. And when he doesn't, he decides, I got to get rid of John Anderton. But you can't murder somebody. So how does he do it? The precogs can see murder, but they can't see deception. They specifically say they can't see rape and kidnapping. So he makes this whole subplot. He goes, I got to get John to kill somebody. He hires this guy to pretend he's the bad guy. The precogs see it. I think this was a very, very uh, roundabout way of murdering John. When I think, uh, I'll admit, a much easier way would be send John to a crime conference in Miami and kill him there because precogs can only seem to see things in Washington, D.C. I think that was Burgess's plan. It was all a setup to get around the precogs. So basically what you're saying is that Burgess wasn't planning to kill John. He only did that once the precog grabbed his leg and then he started asking questions about the murder of her mother. Absolutely. That's exactly what I think. If it wasn't for Colin Farrell's character demanding to go see Agatha, because John had said, I've never met them. We we purposely keep us separated. I've never met the precogs. And that's the first time they ever meet. If it wasn't for that chance meeting where John goes, huh, what the hell is this echo that she's really, really uh, serious about? Wrong place, wrong time. That That's basically what it was. Again, maybe you're right, but I don't think the movie does a good job of explaining that. That's fair. It may it may not. I really just felt like 
he's sabotaging his program that he really doesn't want to sabotage. It doesn't make sense that like he would want to besmirch the name of pre-crime when he wants it to go national. That's his baby. Like he wants that to be like the thing. He wants that to be his legacy. Why would he want to risk all of that? It doesn't make any sense. Well, he truly believes in pre-crime. And, you know, you can make an argument that it is great. You know, there's two systems of justice. There is guilty to proven innocent and innocent to proven guilty. With a guilty to proven innocent, you're going to get every single rapist off the street because anyone accused of it, unless they can prove they're not a rapist, will be in jail and you'll be safe from them. But, of course, you're probably going to lock up a couple other people who are accused of being a rapist and can't prove that they're not. Uh, innocent until proven guilty means we're not going to get all the murders and rapists, but we're not going to do the single worst thing you could possibly do, which is to imprison an innocent person. That's very difficult to do in innocent until proven guilty, but one can make the argument, I think ethically wrong, but I think Burgess can make the argument that maybe there's one guy that, that chose not to kill at the very end, but look at the stats. Washington, D.C. is a murder-free city. I mean, it would not be hard for one to convince themselves that uh, they could sacrifice a couple innocent people, though I disagree with it. You can make that argument, and I think that's what he wanted to do. He truly wanted to make pre-crime national, make murder obsolete. I mean, it's a noble idea, but I think he knew that it's going to jail a lot of innocent people, or at least some innocent people. Well, That's an interesting point, because the way the movie ends is that they disband pre-crime, and pre-crime ends, and all of the people who they were holding, they are letting them all go because they didn't actually kill anyone, so they're innocent, they haven't actually committed any crime, and I really thought that was a weird ending, because it's kind of like they're saying that, well, preventing murders before they happen is bad? Like, no, that's a good thing. And a lot of law enforcement is built around figuring out when things are going to happen before they happen. And of course, it's not a perfect system. We don't have three weirdos in a bathtub who can see the future. But people in law enforcement look for chatter. They look for things. They look for people saying that they're going to commit a crime. And anytime there's a mass shooting or something, you know, when they say, oh, well, there were all these red flags that the person wrote about it online. And when someone does write something threatening online and the police spring into action, you're like, yeah, good. You know, like we want police and law enforcement and FBI and whoever to stop these things before they happen. That's like a good thing. And this movie seems to be saying, no, it's bad because maybe somebody could be imprisoned. But I think the problem isn't like stopping a murder before it happens. The problem is that in this movie, when someone is arrested for pre-murder or whatever, they get haloed, which means they have this like thing put on their head and they're put in this like virtual reality prison, which is maybe not so bad, or maybe it's like a form of torture. They don't really say, but like, that's the problem. Like busting these people who are about to kill their husband, wife, whoever, good, do that. Maybe just don't like put them in a perpetual prison for the rest of their lives. That's the problem. That does create an interesting conundrum there of what do you do with people? You know, in suspended animation, are they aging? Is this just a cheaper way to jail them? You know, you have to feed them and, and, you know, monitor them. Or are you kind of making them lose 50 years, but then they'll get to live later when everyone they want to murder is is gone? It's not made clear. Um, It's very interesting that... uh, that you talk about the ending. One could call this, I guess, a Spielbergish ending. Spielbergian? Spielbergian ending, that it uh, ends is somewhat happy and that you know, the precogs are all happy and Tom Cruise seems to be maybe moving on or something. But uh, in the novel, the pre-crime program is shut down. But you know what happens in Washington, D.C.? There's 130 murders in the city the next year. Like, if you won't let us jail a couple innocent people, you humans are going to human. And you're just going to start killing each other again. And there's another interesting part that very much changes the end of the 
film, you know, at the very end, there's this house. I can only, it just screams to be New England, but it looks like there is, they're in this like New England uh, house off the coast of Cape Cod or something. I think it's off the coast of Maine. Yeah, on the coast of Maine or something. It was beautiful. And they're just reading because they have all these thoughts and they just want to be alone with their thoughts for the rest of their life. The precogs. The precogs, yes. The thing that happens in the novel, though, the precogs wind up having to live on a desert island in the middle of the Pacific. That's the only way they could be far enough from any humans to have any nightmares. So the novel ends very pessimistically that crime comes back, the precogs have to live in a sort of torture, uh, you know, so that they're not tortured by their own nightmares, but they have to live in a desert island. You know, the ending is what the ending is in the movie. It's, It's very different than the novel. Well, then, allow me to ask you, James, do you think that Minority Report, the movie, not the novella, stands the test of time? I think this is a solid sci-fi film. It's not a liquid sci-fi film or like a gaseous sci-fi film? No, it's neither of those. But uh, there are problems with it. There's a couple logic problems with the screenplay. Apparently, the screenplay was fixed a lot because uh, he was originally going to do this before he did AI, artificial intelligence. He was going to do this in the late 90s, but instead he kind of flipped the the projects and did AI first and worked on this script. So there probably would have been even more uh, problems with it uh, in the original script. The original script, by the way, was going to star um, Ian McKellen in the Burgess role, Mm -hmm. Matt Damon in the Colin Farrell role, and um, Kate Blanchett in the uh, Agatha role. Interesting. It would have been a quite different film, but I think this film is solid. It's a fun sci-fi film. I mean, he's peak Tom Cruise here. It's just a very movie star-esque movie star performance by Tom Cruise. I think the soundtrack, I've talked about it. It's just John Williams-esque. It's uh, nothing that uh, you're definitely going to remember the next day, but like you instantly recognize it. And uh, the cinematography is great. The level of sci-fi is perfect. There's one thing I, I had a little complaint about, and I was glad. I saw it on IMDb uh, trivia. And that is the one trope of sci-fi films. Well, there's two tropes. There's flying cars and there's jetpacks. Mm. And this film did have jetpacks. And Spielberg, apparently, in an an interview, admitted that the futurists were like, there's not going to be jetpacks. But Spielberg's like, I got to put jetpacks in a sci-fi film. So he's able to, you know, cheat a little bit. Um, it's, It's a good film. Is it Spielberg's best? No. Is it Tom Cruise's best? No. I'm not sure if it's better than War of the World which you and I will uh, review sometime, and also the Spielberg-Tom Cruise film. But it's a lot of fun. I really liked it. If you like sci-fi, uh, then I, I recommend seeing it. It's a good time, and I say it does stand the test of time. What do you think, Al? Minority Report 2002 to stand up 20 years later? One thing before I get into answering that question. There are no flying cars in this movie, But there are kind of basically flying cars where they have these cars that are on like these maglev tracks and they go like fully vertical. So they're not flying because they're connected by magnets, but it's still like a very futuristic thing. And there is the scene where Tom Cruise is like jumping from car to car on this vertical thing, which is really, really dumb because like no one's even really chasing him at that point. But it's just Tom Cruise doing a crazy Tom Cruise action movie stunt because that's his thing. It was a very sci-fi trope scene, jumping from flying car to flying car. In this case, it wasn't flying cars. But I think it is different than flying cars. The reason they'll never be flying cars is because generally people are too stupid to fly cars. And uh, magnet cars, I I think, are at least plausible for most people. Okay. I do like your hot take that people are stupid Um, or maybe just too stupid for flying cars. I can't fly. I mean, I don't know if I'm smart enough to fly a car. Um, I think my biggest problem with this movie is that I just fundamentally disagree with its message. And I think it's interesting that you're saying that the message of the short story is very different and more what you said, pessimistic. To me, it's more realistic. I kind of wish that we lived in a world where we had precogs, where there were people who could predict murders and stop them from happening. I mean, just now as we're recording this, there's all of these mass shootings that are happening. You know, there's renewed talks about gun control and what can we do to to stop these horrible things that happen all the God damn time in this country. And there are a million different solutions for ways that we could possibly solve this problem. 
No one's talking about precogs, you know, because that's not a realistic solution. But God, it sure sounds great to me. And the point of this movie seems to be like, no, no, no. If we did have them, we wouldn't want to use them. And the way that the precogs are in this movie, they are kind of like tortured. They're kind of like held against their will and they're kept in this like meditative state. And it's bad. Like I wouldn't wish for that part in the real world, of course. But the idea of them does sound pretty cool. And the movie kind of taking a stand and saying, well, we wouldn't want to do that because, you know, for some reason it's bad. I don't think the movie makes a strong case for why this is a bad thing in general. Maybe it should have been more clear that it is or is not fate. You make a good argument there. Because yeah. if, if they clearly said that this is your choice, that, and they made it clear to the viewer, I thought she was saying it's your choice, but uh, maybe it wasn't clear. Well, I mean, Agatha does kind of tell John that he has a choice and he can walk away. And then John sort of says the same thing to Burgess at the end. But in both of those cases, there's an asterisk because in both of those cases, those people who are going to allegedly commit this murder, they both know their future. They know that they are supposed to do it. They have an extra window to make more of a decision about it. Like in that very first scene in the movie where the guy just decides to kill his wife because she's cheating on him, that's an act of passion. You know, he wasn't thinking about it. He walked into his house, he saw his wife with another man, and then he grabbed the scissors and was going to kill her. So that wasn't a premeditated thing. And maybe if he had been told, hey, you're going to kill your wife today, then he could have thought about it and then maybe decided, well, I don't want to do that, even though I'm really mad, I'm not going to do it. So that does add an extra layer to it. I just don't think this movie does a really good job of making a case in that regard in terms of free will versus fate. And I think that's an interesting topic. But I don't think it really executes it very well. Also, considering that Spielberg went to all of these lengths to present a realistic future with realistic technology and all of these things that could conceivably happen, the precogs themselves are not even a little bit realistic. Like, they are the product of drug addicts. It's the same exact premise as uh, Looper, if you saw Looper. I did see it. I don't really remember. Oh, they, they sort of get these magic powers and psychic powers because their parents were on some kind of drug. I mean, I think that makes perfect sense. Does it? You're a doctor. You're a pediatrician. You have seen children of drug addicts, I'm sure. How many of them had superpowers? I'm saying it's a decent sci-fi plot point that this weird drug that obviously works on the you know, brain to mess you up will affect the uh, gestating brain and makes them predict the future. Shut up is basically what they're saying. It's not based on technology. It's not explained in any reasonable way. It doesn't feel like this is reasonable, futuristic stuff. You know, like when we were talking about Lawnmower Man and I said that like it was stupid how that guy just becomes psychic and is able to read minds because he gets a shot. Like what would be more realistic, I think, based on the world that we do live in, is if it was all algorithms, you know, if these precogs, they were able to look at a person's behavior and they were able to see Something that like we, based on our current technology, just would have no way of perceiving. That's how they quote unquote predict the future. They're not really predicting. They're just making very smart, educated guesses. But then that doesn't fit with the story that they're telling here. Um, also, by the way, the tagline of this movie is really, really stupid. Do you know what it is? Don't run. Don't chase. It's something like that. It's everybody runs. But that's a really stupid tagline for a movie where literally one guy is on the run. That is a terrible tagline. That, that was made by a marketing team. That was not made by the screenwriter or, or Spielberg. Anderton says it. John says it in the movie. He says, everybody runs. And it's like, well, huh. you're running. Why does he say that? I don't know. It's really, really dumb. Also, at one point, his hacker friend says that like he doesn't want to deal with the precog. And he's like, well, just take her to Radio Shack. It's like, ah, that's a thing that doesn't stand yeah. the test of time. Uh, but that's a small detail. Overall, I don't think this movie stands the test of time. Mainly because I would love to live in a world where murders are prevented before they happen. And this movie ends with, no, you don't want to live in that world. I think I do. But you'll live in a world where innocent people go to jail. 
I want to live in a world where when someone is arrested for a murder that they didn't commit, they are not sent to a VR hellhole for the rest of their lives. I don't want that person to ever be able to purchase any kind of weapon. I want them to be on lists. I'm saying this movie doesn't stand the test of time because with rising crime in the real world, having a stance of preventing murders before they happen is bad, I think is the wrong take. And I think if it was released today, audiences would feel very differently about it. So you still think if two out of three psychics said you're going to murder your wife, you go to jail forever? No, 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 no. If two out of three psychics say I'm going to murder my wife, cops need to come to my house and stop me. 100%. Do I need to go to jail forever? No. That's the part that's the problem. Okay, I see. They did make that note at the end that they said that everyone arrested by the pre-crime program were released, but the police followed them for a long time. They specifically do say They say some of them are under surveillance. Yeah. So, like, why some? Well, because I think the guy that we saw in the beginning of the film, he's a guy who murders his wife in a moment of passion. That guy probably doesn't need to be monitored for 75 years. He's probably not a murderer. He's probably a man capable of murder. You can make the argument that anyone is. That That's what I think. I think that. But again, I, I think that. it's a fair take. I happen to see the film as this is one possible future that the precogs see. So for me, it stands up. But I see your argument. If you saw the film that way, then, then it would fundamentally change the uh, whole theme of the film. I think if this movie was made today, it would have to have either a different take or a more clear explanation of its point of view. So I feel confident in saying that the movie does not stand the test of time today. I appreciate your point of view, even though it might be wrong. That's okay. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about a movie that's not 20 years old, but it's celebrating its 25th anniversary, Face Off. This is a movie with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. I'm very confident that I've seen that movie exactly one time. And I just remembered that the plot is so preposterous and silly and stupid, but I think the movie takes it seriously, maybe? I might hate it. I might love it. I don't know. I have no idea where I'm going to land with Face Off, but I'm excited to watch it for next week. Oh, I think I know. And I will tell the listeners, it is going to be a fantastic episode. But I am surprised by one thing. What is that movie called that we're reviewing next week? Oh, it's called Face Slash Off. That's correct, yes. Now, you know why it's called Face Slash Off? Uh, no. Why is it called Face Slash Off? Because apparently they had to call it that so that people wouldn't automatically think it's a movie about hockey. Oh, no, it's a movie about faces coming off. Literally faces coming off. Yeah, pretty much. And it's going to be a fantastic episode. Tune in next week. And to make sure you don't miss it, make sure you're subscribed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, whatever podcast provider you like. And of course, we want to hear from you at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we'll see you next week, everybody. Bye.